Chapter 7 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 7. Incipiat Vita Nova. In the notebook may be seen Gilbert's occasional thoughts about his own future love story. Suddenly in the midst. Suddenly in the midst of friends, of brothers known to me more and more, and their secrets, histories, tastes, hero worships, schemes, love affairs, known to me, suddenly I felt lonely. Felt like a child in a field, with no more games to play, because I have not a lady to whom to send my thought at that hour, that she might crown my peace. Madonna Mia. About her whom I have not yet met, I wonder what she is doing, now at this sunset hour. Working, perhaps, or playing, worrying, or laughing. Is she making tea, or singing a song, or writing, or praying, or reading? Is she thoughtful, as I am thoughtful? Is she looking now out the window, as I am looking out the window? But a few pages later comes the entry, F.B., you are a very stupid person. I don't believe you have the least idea how nice you are. F.B. was Francis, daughter of a diamond merchant sometime dead. The family was of French descent, the name de Blog having been somewhat unfortunately anglicized into Blog. They had fallen from considerable wealth into a degree of poverty that made it necessary for the three daughters to earn a living. Frances was never strong, and Gilbert has told how utterly exhausted she was at the end of each day's toil. She worked very hard as secretary of an educational society in London. The family lived in Bedford Park, a suburb of London, that went in for artistic housing and a kind of garden city atmosphere, long before this was at all general. Judging by their photographs, the three girls must all have been remarkably pretty and young men frequented the house in great numbers. Among them, Brimley Johnson, who was engaged to Gertrude, and Lucian Oldershaw, who later married Ethel. Sometime in 1896, Oldershaw took Gilbert to call, and Gilbert literally at first sight fell in love with Francis. From the Autobiography, page 153. To my lady, God made you very carefully. He set a star apart for you, he stained it green and gold with fields, and aureoled it with sunshine. He peopled it with kings, peoples, republics, and so made you very carefully. All nature is God's book, filled with his rough sketches for you. From the Notebook When almost 40 years later Gilbert was writing his autobiography, Francis asked him to keep her out of it. The liking they both had for keeping private life private made him call it this very Victorian narrative. Nevertheless, he tells us something of the early days of their acquaintance. Gilbert had mentioned the moon. She told me in the most normal and unpretentious tone that she hated the moon. I talked to the same lady several times afterwards and found that this was a perfectly honest statement of fact. Her attitude on this and other things might be called a prejudice, but it could not possibly be called a fad, still less an affection. She really had an obstinate objection to all those natural forces that seemed to be sterile or aimless. 
She disliked loud winds that seemed to be going nowhere. She did not care much for the sea, a spectacle of which I was very fond, and by the same instinct she was up against the moon, which she said looked like an imbecile. On the other hand, she had a sort of hungry appetite for all the fruitful things like fields and gardens and anything connected with production, about which she was quite practical. She practiced gardening. In that curious cockney culture, she would have been quite ready to practice farming. And on the same perverse principle, she actually practiced a religion. This was something utterly unaccountable, both to me and to the whole fussy culture in which she lived. Any number of people proclaimed religions, chiefly oriental religions, analyzed or argued about them, but that anybody could regard a religion as a practical thing like gardening was something quite new to me, and to her neighbors, new and incomprehensible. She had been by accident brought up in the school of an Anglo-Catholic convent, and to all the agnostic or mystic world, practicing a religion was much more puzzling than professing it. She was a queer card. She wore a green velvet dress, barred with gray fur, which I should have called artistic, but that she hated all the talk about art. And she had an attractive face, which I should have called elfish, but that she hated all talk about elves. But what was arresting and almost blood-curdling about her is that social atmosphere it was not so much that she hated it as that she was entirely unaffected by it. She never knew what was meant by being under the influence of Yeats or Shaw or Tolstoy or anybody else. She was intelligent with a great love of literature and especially of Stevenson. But if Stevenson had walked into the room and explained his personal doubts about personal immortality, she would have regretted that he should be wrong upon the point, but would otherwise have been utterly unaffected. She was not at all like Robespierre, except in a taste for neatness and dress. And yet it is only in Mr. Belloc's book on Robespierre that I have ever found any words that describe the unique quality that cut her off from the current culture and saved her from it. God had given him in his mind a stone tabernacle in which certain great truths were preserved imperishable. Autobiography, pages 151 to 153. A letter to a friend, Mildred Wayne, who was now engaged to Waldo Avigdor, makes the future tolerably easy to foresee. My brother wishes me to thank you with ferocious gratitude for the music, which he is enjoying tremendously. It reminds me rather of what Miss Frances blog, but that is another story. In your past letter, you inquired whether I saw anything of the blogs now. If you went and put that question to them, there would be a scene. Mrs. Blog would probably fall upon the fire irons. Nollies would foam in convulsions on the carpet. Ethel would scream and take refuge on the mantelpiece, and Gertrude would faint and break off her engagement. Francis would, but no intelligent person can affect an interest in what she does. Lawrence Solomon told me that Mrs. Edward Chesterton did not approve of the rather arty, crafty atmosphere of Bedford Park, that earliest of garden cities, so conveniently unconventional, where Francis lived. She did not like her son's friendship with the blogs, and she had chosen for him a girl who she felt would make him an ideal wife. Very open air, Mr. Solomon said, not booky, 
but good at games and practical. He was not sure whether Gilbert realized this, but personally I believe that Gilbert realized everything. Of course you know, Andy Furman wrote to me, that Aunt Marie never liked Francis or Bentley. Annie was the girl chosen by Gilbert's mother. She was very much a member of the family. Did Gilbert ever speak to you? She wrote to me recently of the old Saturday night parties at Barnes at the home of the grandparents. Every Saturday night, the family, or as many of it as could, used to go down to Barnes to supper. And the boys and Tom Gilbert, Alice Chesterton's husband, used to sing round the supper table. Many a one I went to when I was staying at Warwick Gardens. We used to go on a red Hammersmith bus before the days of motor cars. On a longer trip, they stayed at Burke in Belgium, and Cecil had a strange idea, apparently regarded by him as humorous, which measures the family absence of a Christian sense at this date. Cecil urged me to sit at the foot of the big crucifix in the village street and let him photograph me as Mary Magdalene. I didn't, and I don't know how he thought he'd get away with the modern clothing. Whatever Gilbert's mother may have planned for them, neither she nor Gilbert had any romantic feeling for each other. Indeed, Cecil was definitely her favorite, and she believed him the favorite of both parents also. He had more heart, she says, than the more brilliant Gilbert. Anyhow, his heart was shown more openly to her. Cecil was not much given to versifying, she wrote in another letter. He sent me the enclosed when my son was born. I value it so much. Headed to Annie, the poem is a long one. It begins with the ancient comradeship, loyal and unbroken, in which they had first seen life together. Shining nights, tumultuous days, joy swift caught in sudden ways. All the laughter, love, and praise, all the joys of living. These we shared together, dear, plot and jest and story. This is hid, shut off, unknown, seeing that to you alone is the wondrous kingdom shown and the power and glory. Annie's thoughts then, and Cecil's, were not greatly on the elder brother, who was pursuing his own romance with a heart that seems to have been fairly adequate in its energies. Most mothers have watched their sons through one or more experiences of calf love. Gilbert indicates in the autobiography, and I knew it too from some jokes he and Francis used to make, that he had one or two fancies before the coming of reality. He must then convince his mother that reality had come. He must overcome a prejudice avowed by neither. He must call on the deeps of a mother's feelings so effectively that it would never now be avowed, that it might indeed be swept away. And so, sitting at a table in a seaside lodging, as his mother sat in the same room or moved about making cocoa for the family, Gilbert tried to express what even for him was the inexpressible. 1 Roseberry Villas, Granville Road, Felix Stowe. Dearest Mother, You may possibly think this is a somewhat eccentric proceeding. You are sitting opposite and talking about Mrs. Burline. But I take this method of addressing you because it occurs to me that you might possibly wish to turn the matter over in your mind before writing or speaking to me about it. I am going to tell you the whole of a situation in which I believe I have acted rightly, though I am not absolutely certain, and to ask for your advice on it. It was a somewhat complicated one, and I repeat that I do not think I could rightly have acted otherwise. 
But if I were the greatest fool in the three kingdoms, and had made nothing but a mess of it, there is one person I should always turn to and trust. Mothers know more of their sons' idiocies than other people can, and this has been particularly true in your case. I've always rejoiced at this and not been ashamed of it. This has always been true and always will be. These things are easier written than said, but you know it is true, don't you? I am inexpressibly anxious that you should give me credit for having done my best and for having constantly had in mind the way in which you would be affected by the letter I am now writing. I do hope you will be pleased. Almost eight years ago, you made a remark. This may show you that if we jeer at your remarks, we remember them. The remark applied to the hypothetical young lady with whom I should fall in love and took the form of saying, if she is good, I shan't mind who she is. I don't know how many times I have said that over to myself in the past two or three days in which I have decided on this letter. Do not be frightened, or suppose that anything sensational or final has occurred. I am not married, my dear mother, neither am I engaged. You are called to the Council of Chiefs very early in its deliberations. If you don't mind, I will tell you briefly the whole story. You are, I think, the shrewdest person for seeing things whom I ever knew. Consequently, I imagine that you do not think that I go down to Bedford Park every Sunday for the sake of the scenery. I should not wonder if you know nearly as much about the matter as I can tell in a letter. Suffice it to say, however briefly, for neither of us care much for gushing, this letter is not on Mrs. Radcliffe lines. That the first half of my time of acquaintance with the blogs was spent in enjoying a very intimate but quite breezy and platonic friendship with Francis Blog, reading, talking, and enjoying life together, having great sympathies in all subjects, and the second half in making the thrilling but painfully responsible discovery that platonism on my side had not the field by any means to itself. That is how we stand now. No one knows except her family and yourself. My dearest mother, I am sure you are at least not unsympathetic. Indeed, we love each other more than we shall either of us ever be able to say. I have refrained from sentiment in this letter, for I don't think you like it much. But love is a very different thing from sentiment, and you will never laugh at it. I will not say that you are sure to like Francis, for all young men say that to their mothers, quite naturally, and their mothers never believe them, also quite naturally. Besides, I am so confident I should like you to find her out for yourself. She is in reality very much the sort of woman you like, what is called, I believe, a woman's woman, very humorous, inconsequent, and sympathetic, and defiled with no offensive exuberance of good health. I have nothing more to say except that you and she have occupied my mind for the last week to the exclusion of everything else, which must account for my abstraction, and that in her letter she sent the following message. Please tell your mother soon. Tell her I am not so silly as to expect her to think me good enough, but really I will try to be. An aspiration which, considered from my point of view, naturally provokes a smile. Here you give me a cup of cocoa. Thank you. Believe me, my dearest mother, always your affectionate son, Gilbert. What exactly Gilbert meant by saying they were not engaged is hard to surmise in view of Francis' message 
to her future mother-in-law of his sensations when proposing Gilbert gives some idea in the autobiography. It was fortunate, however, that our next most important meeting was not under the sign of the moon, but of the sun. She has often affirmed, during our later acquaintance, that if the sun had not been shining to her complete satisfaction on that day, the issue might have been quite different. It happened in St. James Park, where they keep the ducks and the little bridge, which has been mentioned in no less authoritative a work than Mr. Belloc's essay on bridges. Since I find myself quoting that author once more, I think he deals in some detail, in his best topographical manner, with various historic sites on the continent, but later relapses into a larger manner, somewhat thus. The time has now come to talk at large about bridges. The longest bridge in the world is the fourth bridge, and the shortest bridge in the world is a plank over a ditch in the village of Loudwater. The bridge that frightens you most is the Brooklyn Bridge, and the bridge that frightens you least is the bridge in St. James Park. I admit that I crossed that bridge in undeserved safety, and perhaps I was affected by my early romantic vision of the bridge leading to the princess's tower, but I can assure my friend, the author, that the bridge in St. James Park can frighten you a good deal. From the Autobiography, pages 154 to 155. Now, with Francis promised to him, Gilbert could enjoy everything properly, could execute, verbally at least, a wild fantasia. Among the first of his friends to be written to was Mildred Wayne, because, as he says in a later letter, he felt towards her deep gratitude for forming a topic of conversation on my first visit to a family with which I have since formed a dark and shameful connection. Dear Mildred, on rising this morning, I carefully washed my boots in hot water and blackened my face. Then, assuming my coat with graceful ease and with the tails in front, I descended to breakfast, where I gaily poured the coffee on the sardines and put my hat on the fire to boil. These activities will give you some idea of my frame of mind. My family, observing me leave the house by way of the chimney and take the fender with me under one arm, thought I must have something on my mind. So I had. My friend, I am engaged. I am only telling it at present to my real friends, but there is no doubt about it. The next question that arises is, whom am I engaged to? I have investigated this problem with some care, and as far as I can make out, the best authorities point to Francis Blog. There can, I think, be no reasonable doubt that she is the lady. It is as well to have these minor matters clear in one's mind. I am very much too happy to write much, but I thought you might remember my existence sufficiently to be interested in the incident. Waldo has been of so much help to me in this and in everything, and I am so much interested in you for his sake and your own that I am encouraged to hope our friendship may subsist. If ever I have done anything rude or silly, it was quite inadvertent. I have always wished to please you. To Annie Furman, he wrote, I can only think of the day one of the earliest I can recall of my life, when you came in and helped me to build a house with bricks. I am building another one now, and it would not have been complete without your going over it. To others, he wrote such sentences as he could put together in the whirlwind of his happiness. For himself, he stammered in a verse that grew with the years into his great love poetry. God made thee mightily, my love. He stretched his hands out of his rest and lit the star of east and west, brooding o'er darkness like a dove, 
God made thee mightily, my love. God made thee patiently, my sweet. Out of all stars he chose a star. He made it red with sunset bar. And green with greeting for thy feet. God made thee mightily, my sweet. End of chapter 7